0: Do you meditate? I was just. Right, I <laughs> yeah, but you're not a meditator. I downloaded Headspace. I used it once for like ten seconds, and, and then you're I was like, like, I got distracted.
1: <laughs> I got shit to do.
0: <laughs> then I put it in one of those folders in your phone, like little app folders. Uh-huh. And then I pulled it back out recently, and then I'm like, I'm gonna use it, and I'm gonna put it like I put it in a really prominent location, like somewhere next to my so I'll try to use it all the time, and I never use it.
1: Do you uh, get stressed? Uh,
0: of course, everyone gets stressed. If they say you don't, then either you're some kind of like monk that I don't understand or you're a liar uh-huh. but absolutely i get stressed
1: so it's all about how you handle it i guess
0: i think i i feel like i stress myself out all the time and that's kind of like how i motivate myself like i put myself like my back against a wall and i feel like fight to get out of it uh, i feel like stress is like my um, it's like my, my my energy i guess yeah 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 in a weird sick way <laughs> and then do
1: you feel like you have to like release yourself from the stress
0: the only way I release myself is by finishing the project, you know, like checking the box. And right. Then like, oh, okay, like, you know, there's no way like, oh, I'm gonna go relax or like take a vacation. Like that right. doesn't relieve me from the stress. If the right. project isn't finished, I could be on a beach in Bora Bora and if that thing that's stressing me out isn't done yet or handled, then I'm stressed.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why those meditation things don't work for you.
0: I haven't tried them, so maybe they <laughs> will work for me. I just
1: honestly haven't given myself the proper time to go do that. Maybe driving is my meditation, I guess. Right, in LA, you get like an hour and a half of downtime silence exactly yeah I have a pre-flight checklist what does that mean um, because I'm not so used to like recording podcasts oh. um, so silence phones you did that I got to do that uh, speak into the mic this is your mic facing you okay okay clocks ticking from hypebeast radio I'm Jeff staple and this is the business of hype a show about creative entrepreneurs brand builders innovators and the realities behind the dreams they've built I've had the pleasure of knowing Aaron Levant since the early 2000s and seeing where his passions and career have taken him has been amazing to watch. He was part of a small t-shirt brand called Green Apple Tree that we stocked at my shop ReadSpace. That's how we met. Now, before we get too far into this episode, I feel like I need to shed some background information on what a trade show is, because unless you work in the industry, you might not exactly know what that is. Essentially, if you have a brand, and mind you, this is pre-internet e-com sales. Your goal was to get that brand into stores and as many stores as possible all across the country, all across the world. Now, you could do that in one of two ways. You could get in a car, train, bus or plane and literally travel around the world door to door trying to get these stores to buy your brand, which as fun as that sounds, you'd soon run out of money doing that. Or you attend a trade show. Now imagine a massive convention center, literally bigger than a sports arena, housing hundreds if not thousands of brands in your similar industry. There's ones for tech, ones for golf, ones for mountain wear, ones for ladies lingerie, ones for shoes, ones for fashion, you name it. Now you go to these conventions for three to four days and all the world stores flock to you rather than you flying around to see them. The other benefit is the networking that naturally occurs when you have hundreds of buyers, sellers, press, designers, etc., etc., all housed under one roof. So in principle, it's a good thing. Here's the problem. As these trade shows grew and grew, and by the way, trade shows like ASR, which was Action Sports Retailer, and Magic, which was the Men's Apparel Guild in California. No, really. That's really what it stood for. These trade shows would grow to become billion-dollar behemoths. And soon, a natural pecking order forms, right? Big brands with big budgets get all the love. Small brands that are filled with passion but not deep pockets get shitted on. And you start to get this gentrified mall feeling. Okay, so that's the Cliff Notes version of what a trade show is. Now back to Aaron. Aaron is what I'd call a disruptor. Because not only did he see a flaw in the system, he put into action a plan to turn the whole thing upside down. Now in this particular episode, we get to witness a very successful entrepreneur closing one chapter in his life and opening upon a new one. And lucky us, we have the luxury of watching it unfold in real time. Um, So for those who don't know, just uh, give us an introduction of who you are and what you do.
0: I'm Aaron Levant. Um, What I do, I am the founder of Agenda, and I also produce an event called ComplexCon. I guess those are two things that I've known for, and I've done a bunch of other random stuff among the years. Not worth mentioning.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not worth mentioning. Um, So this podcast recording is at a very fortuitous moment, like a crossroads moment in your life, maybe, because um, just this week, uh, it's funny that I asked you what you do, but it's just this week that you announced that you're going to be changing what you're doing.
0: Yeah. Um, I announced, I think yesterday, publicly or earlier this week, Bobby Hundreds announced that I will be uh, leaving the company that I founded uh, after 15 years. And uh, i been working in apparel for almost 19 years. And I'm going to, you know, leave this chapter of my life behind and go pursue a new, new career. Do you know what that new career is yet? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, um, you know, I think for me, i definitely looking for a new challenge. I felt like I've learned everything I can learn about events, trade shows, festivals, you know, that kind of thing. I don't want to say, like, I'm the best or whatever, but I've definitely, like, learned a lot about that. And for me, I've always been, like, kind of jumping, not in, like, a, a negative way, but, like, jumping from thing to thing, learning about whatever, graffiti, graphic design. I used to do motion graphics and, and, and film editing. And um, I published a magazine. I've always tried all these different things and I kind of learned about that thing and I keep going. The one thing I stuck with the longest was kind of like the apparel industry and different you know iterations of that. I ran a sales agency. Um, running Agenda, starting ComplexCon, starting Agenda Festival, um, you know, just kind of learning everything I can along the way and I think I kind of you know reached the point where I have like my doctorate in this business and I want to learn something else. Um, I'm interested in media, I'm interested in uh, other new types of platforms, I'm always still interested in experience Mm -hmm. Um, but just different kinds of experience, you know. Experience can be a lot of things, right? It doesn't have to be a festival or a con. Um, You know, things like Museum of Ice Cream is an experience, or uh, 14th Factory in L.A., if you've been to that, like those are experiences, there's, museums are an experience, you know, going to the Broad is an experience, so Mm -hmm. I think I'll always have a passion for building experience, but I think there's a lot of different iterations of that I'd like to explore.
1: Um, I think I read somewhere that you said um, people have three chapters in their life, I think you said, right? Yeah. And you finished, like, this is sort of the end of your second chapter. My first chapter. Oh, your first chapter. Yeah. Okay.
0: I think you have room for, like, three major chapters in your career. Okay. Yeah. My and life, so you, I think
1: there's more than that, but my career, yeah. Okay. So you're embarking on chapter two. Chapter two. Let's go back to the beginning of chapter one really quick. Yeah. I mean, my very
0: first thing I did in business, which I often forget about, but when I was, like, eight or nine years old, I had—I still have an affinity for cars, but I had an affinity for cars at that age, and I published a car magazine Uh, And I literally went and like cut pictures out of like all my other favorite books and magazines and like assembled them on a piece of paper with like glue sticks and whatever and did like a nice cover. I did some typesetting and I um, built like this magazine called Hot Cars when I was eight or nine years old. And I went to my next door neighbor who was an Arby's franchisee and I sold him the back cover. So I had like an Arby's ad and an advertisement on the back cover. So that's my first sale that I ever made. And I literally went and like photocopied off like fifteen copies, and I started selling them to kids at school and at camp, and that was kind of my introduction into entrepreneurialism. <laughs> um, and ever since then, I've always been just trying to
1: shit. You know what's ironic? That whole concept is so on trend right now. <laughs> yes. Like if you just zine. made a zine, yes. <laughs> call it hot cars. <laughs> yeah. One of
0: my buddies has like a has a zine company. You know, it's funny, we've always been messing with zines and things like that. I didn't I didn't realize that was like in the last couple of years become a very hot, that whole LA book fair. Yeah. Um, I went to that recently. I know the guy died or killed himself, which is really sad. It was an amazing event. But, um, yeah, like, that's so crazy because it's yeah. something I've had an affinity for forever.
1: <laughs> so then what about, what, what other entrepreneurial endeavors did you have?
0: I started a uh, graffiti website um, when I was in ninth grade. Um, I started a t-shirt company. I tried to put out a series of graffiti DVDs. I was really interested in street art and graffiti from, like, a very young age. Um, did that for a while. And then um, I interned at Warner Brothers... Uh, when I was in like the 10th grade when I got kicked out of high school running packages in the back lot. But I was like working at Warner Animation and I started like designing stuff. So I got, got interested in graphic design there. Um, and then I kind of uh, got you know, kind of my life defining moment, I guess, the change from being like a juvenile delinquent, want to be graffiti thug to actually like getting into the business world was when I got kicked out of high school in 10th grade. And then I started an internship with Gypsies and Thieves, kind of iconic L.A. streetwear brand, Mm -hmm. in like 1998,
1: 1999. What did you get kicked out of high school for? (laughs)
0: Uh, I was constantly getting in trouble for everything from fighting with kids to um, whatever, having weed at school to, you know, being oppositionally defiant, which continues to be my attitude to this day. Mm -hmm. Um, Pretty much everything that you could do wrong, I I did. And they just kicked you out? Yeah, they had, like, a meeting with me and my parents, at like, a, at the district level. Like, first you get in trouble with the school, and then you get in trouble with, like, the district. So, like, the superintendent of the school district, like, called me and my parents, in and they said, like, this is Aaron's last chance, and if he does, you know, one more thing wrong, he's, you know, done at this school district forever kind of thing. And then the next week I, like, got arrested at school. Like, you know, it's just like, yeah, I just, like, put the nail in my coffin pretty much forever. Did you go to college? No, I didn't finish. I, I made it through, like, the homecoming dance time, whatever that is, whatever part of the year that is. Uh, of 10th grade and then I never finished high school and I never went to college Wow Yeah Crazy
1: It's a cliched common anecdote that the dropouts are the ones who become the ridiculously crazy success stories but speaking as a double dropout myself I don't think any of us are saying drop out of school and you'll be successful There's obviously other elements needed and for Aaron he even conveniently coined the term for us all his life he practiced oppositional defiance he looked at the way the system was doing things and said i think it should be done different i oppose this i defy this this could be the foundation of aaron's personality he had a passion for the culture that surrounded him graffiti design and street art what have you but he focused his passion into his contributions to the culture He might not have been the best t-shirt designer or the best zine maker or the best graph artist, but what he did do best was provide a platform for these individuals to speak on. These three elements, the passion, the defiance, and the fact that nothing would stand in his way, not even high school, would be the ingredients that led to his success.
0: So yeah, I mean, I got that, you know, stuck, did nothing for a little while, Mm -hmm. um, continue to follow graffiti and do stuff like that and then I just randomly landed this internship and one of the first things I ever did randomly is uh, I met the owner of the company through my friend Tall, and they needed help going to the ASR trade show mm-hmm. setting up their booth so that was my first job was carrying boxes helping drill in walls and stuff like that so
1: and ASR back then was like the monster surf show it was right? huge yeah it was actually here
0: in Long Beach maybe was the first one I went to and um you know, I showed up and I was just like, my eyes were wide open. Just like, wow, it was like yeah. culture and just like every famous skater and athlete and you know, even like Tribal had like all these famous graffiti writers and this company GATT, like all the graffiti writers that I was interested in growing up, mm-hmm. um, who I was kind of idolizing and looking up to, guys from like AWR and MSK graffiti crews out of LA and the West Coast. We're all working at these companies as like graphic designers. So not only getting to meet these guys, but see they were making careers out of, you know, their their work. Yeah. It was really interesting. and. I was like glued, you mm-hmm. know? And then uh, I just kind of like stuck around and then kind of like talked the guy into giving me an internship and, uh-huh. you
1: know, and I, I never looked back from there. And then where do you go from Gypsies and Thieves?
0: I stayed there for a long time, um, first starting off as an intern, um, then working my way up to like, you know, you know, from sorting the guy's magazine to like doing like unpaid graphic design work mm-hmm. and like trying to make like a promotional video for them because I kind of had this little bit of like a self-taught background and like, film and um, editing and motion graphics and stuff like that. And um, one day the head graphic designer or the assistant graphic designer quit and I had a, I just kind of like put my hand up and said, hey, until you hire someone, can I just fill in for this guy? Just yeah. kind of like volunteered and pushed my way in there. And he's like, all right, you know, and, and I just kind of started hustling at that and I filled the role and they never filled it. And then I just kind of worked my way up from like that to head graphic designer to just kept working my way up the
1: ladder, working on marketing. I love hearing stories like this. Aaron literally started at the bottom and grinded his way to the top. He didn't ask for handouts. He patiently waited his turn to show and prove. You might have heard of the term entitlement. This is the exact opposite of that. Like a running back who waits for the right block, Aaron and dozens of other successful entrepreneurs share this same trait. You train your mind, body, and spirit like you're about to play in the Super Bowl. Then you sit and wait for the call because in this world, nobody owes you jack shit. Part of being a great founder is to look for ideas everywhere. In fact, I say put your antennas up when you least expect to find a moment of inspiration. So often I hear sparks of genius occurring in the least obvious places. Now for the last 15 years, the Agenda trade show has become a household name. Jeff, what's going on next week? Agenda, enough said. Now we get to hear how the idea was born.
0: But through that process of um, working there, I'd always go. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with like saving things. I would say like I'm almost like a like a pack rat, mm-hmm. and I save every. I have every you know Vapors magazine, Accelerator magazine, Complex magazine, graf- you know um, every graffiti magazine. I used have like boxes of stuff in my garage rotting with mold on it, probably. <laughs> but uh, this guy Louis was big on saving stuff as well, and uh, I found this flyer in his in his warehouse, and it said Agenda Art Music Beer. It's this old, kind of like funky little flyer, and I asked him. I said, "What's this?" And he Mm -hmm. said, "Yeah, we used to do these parties downtown, one night art shows with music and and uh, art, and you know, it was really cool." And I was like, "Well, this is awesome. Let's do this again." So he was doing it in the early '90s. Yeah, and I found this flyer and I convinced him. Said, "Let's do this again in our warehouse in downtown LA." Around the time we were also starting, Gat was Green uh, G A T or Gypsies and Thieves was having a hard time. So kind of around the same year, we relaunched Gat as a label called Green Apple Tree mm-hmm. which I think we used to sell you at Reed Space probably yep. and um, kind of had like this organic earthy kind of like you know tone to it it was still kind of a streetwear brand and um, same year we relaunched Agenda as a warehouse party called Agenda Art Music Beer
1: so it started as a warehouse party
0: yeah in our warehouse in our you know we'd clear all the racks out, oh, out wow. of the Gat warehouse and we would have cool local LA artists like street artists like coffee and access and just a lot of people we're friends with and like have different DJs come and beer and that was it we did that like three or four times okay Um, somewhere in like 2001 2002 yeah and
1: um, can you um, tell us at this point like yeah. are you making like a lot of money now doing oh, these jobs and stuff? making no money I was working at Gap for like you know ten dollars an hour or whatever even with all these added roles that you're doing
0: yeah I mean the company was like doing very poorly at that time Green Apple trade just started and uh-huh. You know, my brand never really made any money, and you know, like these were all just like I was just stoked to be there. You know, I was living home with my parents, and uh, at that point, I had my license suspended. From um, when, if you get arrested for like minor possession of alcohol before you're like. 21 years old or whatever, like they suspend your license from 16 to 18. So I was living in Agora Hills, which is pretty far north in LA, and I was taking like two buses and a subway to get to work every day. So I was just like commuting back and forth three hours each way every day. I was just so stoked to be there. I didn't care. And I live at home, my parents don't have any expenses, and the guy would buy me lunch, and I was stoked.
1: (laughs) What did your parents think of what you were doing?
0: Uh, At first, they thought I was a liar. Yeah. Because I had just been such a compulsive, Liar, horrible person until that point, point. everything I said was manipulative. And you know, I said I was going to my friend's house, so I was really going to a rave or whatever, right? I was just always doing something bad, you know. Um, so, when I told them I'm going to downtown LA every day, you know, they didn't believe me. And then um, one of their friends was like a, you know, I forget what he did, you know, in some industry, we would go downtown, and he was driving one day, and he called my parents and said, I saw Aaron walking on the street in downtown LA. I think he's buying drugs. Are you guys worried about him? Like, you know, I was really just working, <laughs> <laughs> which is like, this is like the arts district in LA, which is now, like, there's a cell house going in. There. There's all this cool stuff. But, yeah. like, you were talking about 1999, like, downtown LA was not a cool place to be. Mm-hmm. And it's if still, you were walking
1: there, you were looking for trouble. Yeah, I mean, it was like,
0: a, literally, like, a warehouse district in, like, Skid Row and, uh-huh. like, some dilapidated buildings. Like, yeah. It was not the hipster, like, you know, Williamsburg-esque area that it is now. Yeah, yeah. You know, so this is a very different time, so. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I just, you know, just hustling there, working as hard as I could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then, yeah, everything. So how do
1: the uh, agenda warehouse parties turn into something that, like, generates money?
0: Yeah, so um, 2002 uh, was a pretty transformative year. Uh, The brands were going, you know, Green Apple Tree is picking up a little bit of hype, um, and we were going to a lot of events. Mm -hmm. Um, We'd been going for the last couple of years to Magic and to ASR as a brand. I went with Gat, then we went with Green Apple Tree, and then Mm -hmm. When Green Apple Tree started to catch a little steam, we went to this thing in New York called TBC, which you probably remember. Oh, To be To be confirmed. To be confirmed, yeah, which was early, early trade show, really like, ahead of its time. Yeah,
1: which
0: I had gone to Magic and I gone to ASR, and they seemed overwhelming to me. And I went to To be confirmed in New York, and essentially they just got this loft at the Start Lehigh Building in Chelsea or mm-hmm. wherever that was, and it was just like a big empty floor, and they yeah. set up some rolling racks and these little signs and a table and a chair. Mm-hmm cool DJ and it was just like a stark space and it was just really cool brands there. It was more about the curation and the product than like, you know, there wasn't really any flair of the show. Mm -hmm. Just like cool buyers, cool brands, cool music, some drinks and pretty simple. Yeah. And I went there and I'm like, oh, this is pretty fucking cool, Mm -hmm. you know? And then uh, maybe... So you went there as an exhibitor? As an exhibitor, yeah. And then maybe six months later, I went to a pool trade show, Mm -hmm. had launched. And they were like in a hotel. It's just like hotel rooms. It was really early days. Yeah. You know, like, um, and, uh, you
1: know, I was literally like Josh from Red Five had the booth next to me, you know, like things like that, right? It was yeah. like that that era. And um, and when you say Green Apple Tree at this point was like starting to take off, like, do you remember what oh, like, I mean, we're the sales were? Oh, we were talking a was? couple hundred thousand dollars, some if that. Like, you
0: know, right. I mean, take off relative to like what I thought was like a big deal back then. Okay. Okay. It Gat in its peak, I think was doing like millions of dollars. We weren't there yet. We were just early days. Like we were getting in some cool accounts and yeah. getting written up in some Japanese magazines and like, <laughs> and you were happy, like, so we yeah, like may yeah. sold a shirt to beams T or, uh-huh. you know, like we were like so excited, but I didn't have any relative experience. Like what, you know, like money was or uh-huh. profit margin. or whatever. I was just excited that there was like energy and like people wanted something that we had done. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, I went to these shows and then I was like, man, I'm like, this is pretty cool. I'm like. This is pretty easy, like you rent a room and like you just call your friends who own brands and you charge them some money. At that point, TBC was like five grand,
1: mm-hmm. I didn't
0: understand that, but like so. I, I was driving to the ASR show in September of 2002, and um, my mom was driving me, I still couldn't drive at that point, I think, I don't know what it was, and meeting me to like go drop me at the subway or to Louie or whatever. And I was like, Hey, do you think like I should? I kind of told her about the shows I went to, whatever. I was like, yeah, I think I should like do this. Mm-hmm. She's like, yeah, you should go for it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. And I showed up at that ASR show, and I started talking to the guys around me. Um, was at that point it was maybe like Immortal, and like Social Studies, and like this like crew of dudes, like yeah. Rick, Ricky Kim was there, with like Evil Manito. It was like a weird, like we're all kind of like around the Stussy booth, it was like the gods. And uh-huh. I was just talking to like my neighbors, and like, uh-huh. what was Wayne's brand? Um, Writer's bench, yeah, Writer's yeah, like, Bench. you know, like these these kind of dudes, and yeah. like uh, I remember I saw like Dennis from the Crooks guys there. They uh-huh. had a, a big game hunter. It was like this kind of like era, uh-huh. and I just started talking to people. I'm like, yeah, I'm like next show I'm gonna
1: do my own show like across the street from ASR. Like, are you guys are you guys down? So these are all small little Very ten small. by ten brands, yeah. That you're just aligning. And I guess everyone has a frustration. Because otherwise, we why were would paying you like
0: five thousand bucks to go to SR Magic, and like there wasn't like a big movement. It wasn't a big hype around our category. Yeah, this was like the point where like you'd be like cool in America, and you'd do some business in Japan, mm-hmm. and like maybe you get in a couple boutiques in America. Mm-hmm. You know.
1: Aaron's patience at the GAT brand allowed him to rise up in the ranks of a small company. That same patience allowed Aaron to observe this flawed system, a white space that he felt he could fill. Well, that's great. But how many times have you complained about something and did nothing about it? Well, Aaron did something about it. And here's a secret, he didn't wait to perfect it. He jumped into the pool and then asked if there was water in it. Taking that hunch, doing a modicum of research, and then executing on the vision was the key to success for Aaron. So like, you know,
0: it was just kind of like, they didn't, they didn't give a shit. We're just another number. Yeah. I don't know if we were like frustrated, but it just, it didn't matter. Like you didn't, why you want to pay all this money and get like very small ROI. Mm-hmm. And um, there wasn't like this big streetwear trend yet. Yeah. It was still like billabong at the front and center or whatever it was. And I just kind of like started talking with mm-hmm. no real plan. And I was like, Hey, I'm going to do this thing. You guys down? was uh-huh. like, yeah, sure, whatever. Okay. So after I kind of saw there was a consensus that people were down, I, went I found this place called the Naga restaurant not far from here in Long Beach the ASR was at this building at Uh this point and I found some Thai restaurant (laughs) which was probably a horrible
1: venue (laughs) and you found a Thai restaurant nearby the convention center yeah not
0: even that nearby actually like in retrospect it was a horrible location you gotta like get in a car and drive (laughs) there's probably like places I could have gotten right here if I'm gonna Uh rent a restaurant but um I paid them three thousand dollars to rent the restaurant for like four days or whatever it was called all my friends. I got 30 brands to sign up and pay $500 mm-hmm. to have a boot there. Mm-hmm. Um, I rented a shuttle bus that would take people, you know, pull up the front here. I put some decals on it. Would we'll pull up front in the event center. Yeah. I got some of my friends from high school to, like, stand in front with, like, a sign saying, like,
1: jump on in. And I, my friend had... Um, Did you get permission from ASR to do this? No, 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 no. So you're pulling accounts and customers yeah. away from ASR.
0: And I got a mailing list from... Um, from my friend who was like a rep for DVS or something, or he stole it, I don't know what it was, but I had this like mailing list of like all the skate accounts in the country, uh-huh. and me and my mom and my grandmother literally, before I knew what a mailing house was, and literally like I printed postcards we were sitting there like licking stamps and like putting on labels, and like literally I sent out like, you know, a thousand postcards to like every skate account in the country, mm-hmm. and I ran some ads, I put up a little website, I self-published, and and like 250 buyers showed up at the first one.
1: And that was called Agenda?
0: It was Agenda, except okay. I changed it from Agenda Art Music Beer to Agenda Art Music Fashion. Okay. And we had a very horrible logo at the time, which I'm not <laughs> proud of, with like a Western
1: font, which is like, I don't know, the worst font. And So do you remember the exhibitors in that first show? The Oh, brands? all of them, yeah. So you gotta...
0: <laughs> I would say, I think every single one of them,
1: Uh huh. every
0: single one is out of business except for Two, which was like How, a brand called How, and Seventh Letter. Um, which but, you own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Wait, they're all out of business. Every single name one. some of them. Uh, Apex Museum. Do you remember that brand? No. Nope. It was a really fucking cool brand, like really cool. Um, Social Studies. Um, I guess Mass Appeal was in that show as like a wow. t-shirt brand, but they had gone out of business. Now this new iteration. Yeah. But it was like literally like Adrian Moulder and um, Patrick. Patrick. Eli- yeah, like dude, they were there. That was sad. Um, uh, like Lithium. Uh, um, I remember Lithium. Yeah. Like uh, this brand called Savier, which was like a skate brand that Nike owned when Nike SB yeah. didn't work the first time they had bought a company before it launched called Savier, and mm-hmm. they were launching their like skate it was like a, yeah. an, an internal competitive like exercise so actually Nike in a way I got a check from Nike Inc. for the very first show for 500 bucks I saved the check um <laughs> which is kind of cool and um there were so many um oh si- yeah Siphon um yeah, I remember siphon. Immortal I mean just go down the list uh so many just random little streetwear companies. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, uh, Outdoor Terrier, I don't know, these brands didn't mean anything. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, like, it was just totally organic, but like some cool, like Fred Siegel, or like Tony from Fred Siegel, he Yeah. Had, like the streetwear shop, he showed up, and like, um, we had like, you know, Beams and Ship showed up. Mm-hmm. Bloomingdale showed up, like some really cool stores showed up. Yeah. And people were like, just like, kind of stoked. They were like, yeah, 500 bucks. I saw some of the top buyers in the world. Mm-hmm. Some people got some like, crazy orders
1: and yeah. it was on. So you were probably profitable from the first show, huh?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, where I spent 6,000 bucks and I made 8,000 bucks, you know what I mean? Yeah. Profitable
1: to a small margin, but like profitable nevertheless. But it kind of showed you, I think, like the math. Yeah. Like if I spend this and get the space, I get people to come, I make yeah, money. Exactly. <laughs> it's just now it's like tenfold, hundredfold, thousandfold, but it's like the same calculation as the Thai restaurant.
0: Yes. <laughs> and just things just got bigger. So I went from 30 brands to 50 brands. And each time I went from like 500 to $600. and mm-hmm. I get to 70 brands and $700. Mm-hmm. And then get a bigger space. The space cost actually got cheaper. The price of the booths went up. I got more brands. I spent a little more money on promotion. What know, do you whatever. mean the
1: space got cheaper? Like at, The renting of the space yeah, got like cheaper. Yeah, like
0: per square foot. I ended up oh, getting a larger yeah. space that right. was more of an event space. There was actual space that I could put people in rather than like shoving someone behind the bar or like in the little <laughs> private <laughs> the dining room or like in a hallway. <laughs> like
1: some people were like, what the fuck are you doing? You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Right. Why am I so close to the men's room? <laughs> yeah, like just
0: I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Uh, I'm not sure that I do now either, but I definitely didn't know what I was doing then. Yeah. Uh-huh yeah, just, you know, it's just this business kind of like formed.
1: Did it ever get to a point where you like butted heads with like the big trade show companies?
0: Well, so when I first did it, I wasn't thinking like I want to make a business out of this. I was like, I just want to do this. So after the first or second show, I actually called ASR. Because I was like running around, I'm like, I'm trying to get this space, you know, I'm struggling to find space because ASR was smart and they locked up all the big spaces around them yeah. for this exact reason. Same reason Agenda <laughs> does it now, too. Um, and I called the head of ASR. I just like went to the website. I'm like, oh, who owns ASR? And I just like picked up the phone. I'm like, hey, what's up? I'm this dude. Like, uh, I, I, my idea was like, I'm like, hey, can I just rent space from you? Since you locked it up, yeah. It seemed logical to me. Like, instead of me running around and doing all this hassle trying to get a space and get racks, I'm like, oh, well, ASR has a bunch of space. So I'll just rent it from them and I'll sell it to people for a little bit more money. It'd be great. And I'm like, I don't even care about making money. I just want to, like, do this cool streetwear thing.
1: Yeah. You're just looking for space right now to house all this stuff. So I called them and
0: they're basically like, what? They're like, you're fucking crazy. Like, stop calling me. Like, what do you want? Uh Uh-huh. And the dude, I kept calling him. And I kept doing the show and I just kept calling him. And... He's like eventually decided to meet with me. He's like, I'll meet with you in like a month. He's like, I got to go to ISPO in Germany. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, I'm going to ISPO, which I totally lied. And I got on a plane and I flew to ISPO in Germany just to go just meet to this meet guy. Just to meet him. Just to meet the guy. Um, <laughs> and I just want to look like I was on his level. I'm like, oh, well, I'm in Germany. Well, you must be in Germany kind of thing. Like, you know, you must be important if you're here too. I was like, you know, 20, 19, 20 years old. <laughs> I was very naive. And I showed up and I had this meeting with him. And he basically dissed me. And then, You uh, didn't have the meeting or he dissed you in the meeting. He dissed me in the meeting. He's like, why would we sell you space? Like, mm-hmm. why would he He's like, just piss off, basically? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a very defining moment for me because I'm very, like, competitive. I'm like, oh, I didn't think it was a competition until that point. And I'm like Oh, oh. I'm like, now it's on. I'm like, fine, you don't wanna get down with me? Well, right. I'm gonna go do my own shit.
1: Cause this whole time you're just trying to almost like work with him and give him money in a sense. You're thinking yeah, like Yeah, I offered to pay them money yeah. for
0: space inside their show. Right. I asked for a discount. I said, if I buy like ten thousand square feet worth of space, can I buy that at a lower price than I would if I'm buying one booth? And then I'm just gonna sell it to people for a little bit more and that's my business. We'll become yeah. like a section. Yeah. That was my idea. I didn't know any better like right. why that would be a bad idea to give them all my customers and But influence. his
1: reaction was like, Oh, okay, this is a battle. His reaction is like, why would we work with you? You're a child. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, who are you, child? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> stop speaking to me.
0: <laughs> um, I encountered that a lot in my career.
1: You must have heard of the expression, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, that was Aaron. Almost adorably so, because it was this ignorance of just calling the owner of ASR, this ignorance of just flying to Germany to meet him, and the ignorance of thinking that his then greatest enemy might actually be an ally, that was precisely the rude awakening Aaron needed to go in the full overdrive on his dream of agenda.
0: So, like, I just kept going, and, and then, like, over the years, it just got bigger and bigger. And it so where did
1: you end up finding the space?
0: Uh, eventually in San Diego, I found this big space called the San Diego Concourse. Mm-hmm. It was pretty big. I mean, big relative. It was like 60,000 square feet. You've probably been to that show. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was big enough for me to put a couple hundred brands in, like 200 brands. Uh, This is before people were building booths. It was just like a rack, right? And eventually Stussy and Obey came in and, like, built some booths and kind of started the space race. But, um, yeah, just kind of running it from there.
1: Yeah, and it just kept growing and growing.
0: Growing and growing. we did have some times when um, it stopped working or people were like, when, when the industry started getting more serious mm-hmm. and streetwear really started to blow, our show and then like Magic was like doing like Slate and all these like things were happening where like bigger companies were like catching on to the trend and they were really spending money. I was yeah. never really spending any money in the beginning. They were having these big parties and the, had these nice looking booth systems and all this shit. Our stuff didn't evolve. And then there was a point where people were like, oh, we're going to stop doing it. And ASR like invented some like copycat product called Black Box Mission and they were like offering all our customers free space. And I had like a little, I had hiccups along the way. Mm-hmm. And I was like fighting to like get people back. And I was like, I distinctly remember I had this dinner with Dre Hayes from the foundation. They told me they're not gonna do the show anymore with any of their brands. And I took Dre out to dinner in LA and I begged him to stay at the show. And I I said, he's like, oh, it's not worth it for me to fly my reps and put them in hotels. I said, okay. I'll buy you plane tickets. I'll pay for your hotels. Like I was so desperate to keep the show together, and like yeah. just like a, it was literally like kind of falling apart because like uh-huh. the industry was maturing, and I didn't understand the speed which I needed to reinvest in the business. I thought I could just keep like throwing racks out there. Yeah. And it was at that time when I really started to reinvest, and really start to take the show seriously. Mm-hmm. And um, what year into the business
1: was that? Two thousand seven. Okay, maybe. so five year. The five year itch is like most businesses. Sort yeah. of hit a five-year point, and then it like starts to stall. Yeah, yeah.
0: And then, and the industry also, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, also when we saw like this kind of economic crash here yeah. in the country, so things were getting tough. Right. Street wars exploding, but the business was getting hard. And I'm like, I'm not giving this up. I like this too much. Then I started. That's when I, that's the year I decided to start flying buyers into the show. Uh huh. And that was a big turning point for us. I started to go to all the coolest stores in the country, and I started spending money to fly them all in. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when we started to win. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we had our biggest roadblock, that ASR. I still kept an open dialogue with them. I kept hitting them up naively, seeing if they wanted to then buy us, I think, or partner with us. I was just naive on like business and mergers and acquisitions and all this shit. And then they finally come to us, and the show was decently big at this point, we were making some real money, and they offered us like $200,000 to buy the company. And um, at that point, I was smart enough to know that that was an insulting amount of money. <laughs> and um, we didn't take it, and uh-huh. then they did some really gangster shit, and they, My partner at the time had forgot to like fill out one of our contracts for like the next future show or something, or like the season after the next show. Like he had a contract on his desk, it was like formality, forgot to like return it in time. And they swooped in and bought the long-term lease on the building for all future show dates. Mm. Because we would always wait for them to release their show dates and then we booked next to them. They knew all their future dates, so they bought like the next five years. And then they bought every other space in town. There was basically nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. And then we even tried to go and get a tent and they gangstered us out of getting the tent. And like they had a relationship with the parking lot, and like all this crazy stuff. Right. And we basically were in the position where we knew we had like one more show left on our lease, and then after that we had nowhere to put the show. Yeah. And we were like, "Fuck, our business is like over." Hmm. Even though we were like, "That's when we're really starting to catch wind," and then that's when um, I uh, decided to take the biggest leap of faith that I ever took in my business career and moved the show from San Diego from being a little show across the street from the big show. We were like a one of those little fish that sucks onto the shark. Yeah, You know, right. we were like that. To saying, I'm gonna pull off of the shark and we moved to Huntington Beach all on our own. It's mm-hmm. a big risk. And that's when I really started to understand the dynamics of selling windows and time cycles, because ASR was February and September, but people really wanted to be selling in January and July. Mm-hmm. And then I partnered with the US Open of Surfing, and in one show, this one pivot, you know, the tipping point or whatever you wanna call it, every customer that I've been calling pretty much, this was 2009, Um, Every customer that I've been calling for the past 2003, 2009, who wouldn't return my phone calls, wouldn't give me the time of day, just because the alignment with US Open, the timing, the energy agenda was building, and the fact that I got Hurley and Nike to come with me, Uh like everybody came, Quicksilver, Vans, like every big brand. Mm -hmm. And literally within one year of us making that move, ASR went out of business. Within one year? One year. So they They've been around 37 years before that. 37 years. And in one year they went
1: out of business?
0: Is this just one gangster pivot on the business. We just innovated, it's not even that big of an innovation, we just simply put a trade show <laughs> in a time window uh-huh. where people could actually be more productive with selling goods at a time when wholesale was still doing well. Put it in a desirable location, um, s- kept it still uniform. Also, this was like 2009, so the market, you know, everyone was just, just like crushed because of the real estate market crash. Yeah. People didn't want to spend money on marketing show and build these big booths. Mm-hmm. So our show was always about like simple, simple format. Yeah. So people were like, oh, I can go here, actually do business, spend less money, Still be cool. Yeah. And like, like, they were just like everything. It was just like this perfect yeah. like alignment. Like right. the stars, people say the stars align. Well, the stars aligned, And like it all just like happened for us. All the years of hard work and eating shit and not making that much money and getting told to go fuck ourselves by lots of people, just like boom. Yeah. Overnight.
1: So ASR's like gangster mafia move, which at the time seemed smart. Smart. Yes. Was actually its checkmate demise on itself. Yes.
0: Their attempt to block us out was essentially their, their death.
1: Yes. Wow.
0: Otherwise, I never would have moved. I just would have stayed yeah. there and been sucking, the little, sucking their yeah. little titty like all yeah. time. <laughs> we would have been. Very, we were very happy with that, you know. I was making an alright living, and you know,
1: yeah, it was fine. And then all of a sudden, that happened. Right. Okay. So, wow, that's an incredible story. Yeah. Um. And then there was the move to, uh, then sort of, move to Vegas and attack like, the big monster yeah. over there at, at Magic, right? It's funny because I had actually
0: been a consultant to Magic. Early, but the same year I started Agenda, I actually helped the Magic Show develop a section called Enclave, which is funny. And like I did this really cool stuff for them, and I was like working on that like while I was trying to develop Agenda, and it was a good learning experience. So I'd always had a good relationship with Magic. Mm-hmm. A lot of my friends had worked there, but they were always I just always saw them as this big monster that wasn't that cool. They're they're a very corporate company, yeah, right. And I didn't think there was any very many cool people that worked there. They would try to hire cool consultants, mm-hmm. but they never really had any authenticity inside the company, and they were always very successful. But as agenda really started to gain steam here in Southern California, I just saw that as like a target, and I'm very yeah. um, competitive in business, as I said. And in 2013, um, got together with my friend Sam, who had started the Project Trade Show, and then mm-hmm. sold it to Magic. Mm-hmm. And um, he had told me, you know, his non-compete was up. He was interested in getting back in the trade show market, and he wanted to go start a new show in Vegas, which turned to be called Liberty. And then my, our other friend Deirdre, who already had a show in Vegas, and then we got this idea: let's all get together and kind of like launch this thing, you know, the yeah. Recapsule agenda. We called it Modern Assembly, kind of like the collective. Mm-hmm. And that's it. We launched agenda in Vegas, and within like two shows, we basically like annihilated the streetwear section at Magic. Like mm-hmm. I think everyone who meant anything to the show like left in the very first show yeah. <laughs> out of the goodwill that we had built in the community. It was a pretty, that was probably, like, my fastest success, like, overnight. Like, it went from nowhere to making, like, millions of
1: dollars, like, overnight. Yeah, and it was that strategic alignment that... Strategic alignment, the timing,
0: the clout that Agenda had with streetwear and the industry at that point, you know, mm-hmm. like, I don't want to, like, sound boisterous, but, like, I mean, we were, like, hot or whatever that means, yeah. you know? Yeah. And when you're hot, like, people will are malleable to your will. And I think, like, the, the February show, when I announced it, I took and maybe you were there, I took like every head of every street or brand to dinner, like Fogo de Chow and I mm-hmm. like made this big like PowerPoint presentation in front of everyone and like did it, and like just everybody got down. Yeah. Um, it was great, you know, it was like,
1: it was amazing. And it was only a couple of years before that, that like you were struggling still. Oh yeah. Like financially <laughs> struggling. And yeah. now here you are putting ASR out of business, number one show in Vegas. Like I'm sure for you personally, the money changed. We started to make
0: significant money, like yeah. from 2009 on. Like it was a different, it was a different world.
1: Yeah, yeah. And how do you feel when you look, like, at your bank account, and you went, like, you could probably still vividly remember ten dollars an hour, taking a two-hour, but like two buses, to work, and then now you see like your bank account. Like, is it surreal to you? Honestly, I've never. <laughs> you never look at your bank. I, mean, account? I mean, honestly,
0: I'm not driven by money. But like, uh, more like the the what do I say the, the thrill of the hunt is the kind of thing that drives me. But I distinctly remember a moment like, whatever. Like I'm, I've always been so naive about like business. I've never been the business guy. When people see me as a business guy. Mm-hmm. I'm always felt like I'm more like the creative guy. But um, you know, like I didn't know a lot about like banking or this and that. So like whatever bank I use, like my mom was like, hey, oh, this is where you should put your money or bank it. So one day like, uh, my mom's accountant called her, and my mom called me, because I had this I had deposited a two hundred thousand dollar cashier's check at the bank and the banker was concerned that I was like drug dealing or laundering money. So he had called like their accountant to call me and my mom was like, what the fuck are you doing? They mm-hmm. thought I was like literally like doing like criminal shit. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I'm just selling trade show booths. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Such a money on that So I'm like, oh, I'm like, I made enough money where people are like alarmed. Yeah. <laughs> you know? like, so I was like, oh, okay, like I guess this is real now. So like that was like the moment where, So yeah. you
1: never really like care about the money much. Like it's just part of the process and part of the rewards maybe.
0: Yeah, I mean the freedom that money buys you is nice to be able to do what you want when you want. But mm-hmm. like I don't think it's like the dollar figure that I'm chasing. I like the the victory and the process and the you know, I like I like doing all the creative shit that I can do around it. I'll be honest, like I've burned a lot of my money trying to do more creative shit that didn't pan out, you know. Mm-hmm. So if I was just concerned about the ultimate number in my bank account, then I wouldn't do half the shit that I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: This is a common theme I hear among those I talk to on the business of hype. The money, the accolades, or the fame, these are the results of the work. Let me say that again. Money is the result of the work, not the purpose of the work. Too often, people are obsessed with how much money they may or may not make and then proceed with the method. I can't speak for everyone, but most people I know that attempt this method run out of steam along the way. Without the passion, you simply won't have the stamina required to weather the storms of starting your own business. So um, fast forward a little bit now and Agenda's, you know, going along, it's doing really well. But then there's like a shift just in all of retail happening, right? Like wholesale starts to slow down a lot and the trade show environment starts to slow down along with it. So you start to see some other opportunity, right? And tell us about like the birth of ComplexCon essentially.
0: Yeah, um, I think there's a couple of key points in there. Like I'd recognize the market had been struggling for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, in the last few years. And in 2012, um, we merged Agenda with a company called ReadPop. Uh, December 2012, were January 2013. ReadPop owns New York Comic Con. They own like every major consumer-facing pop culture event in the world, pretty much. Mm. They own PAX, biggest video game show in the world, all this stuff. And the thesis behind that deal was that I saw even that early in 2012 that the trade show thing in its kind of purest form had a, a lifespan. Yeah. And but I saw this like Comic Con thing is like really amazing. This like fan celebration yeah, event. Yeah. Tons Fandom. of energy at Comic Con. Yeah. yeah. Two hundred plus thousand people right. went this year in New York, right? Yeah. Comic Con not even scratching the surface on that. So I knew that they had a core competency that I didn't have yet, mm-hmm. and that was part of the plan. Was like, yeah, we're going to continue to make these trade shows as long as we can. But I saw that vision. The one thing I didn't see at that point was like, how do I get all these fans to come. Like Agenda mm-hmm. had a strong industry presence, but it wasn't, um, I didn't think that we had enough like muscle with like kids to yeah. get them to come. So it wasn't just like open the doors for Agenda and then you know kids Agenda come, is right. Because it was very wreck. industry. Yeah, it was very industry. Yeah. The brands had the attention and I couldn't, I couldn't always depend on the brands to market for us.
1: Mm-hmm. So here you have, you've built this baby 12, what was it 12th year, 15th year? Um, when we ten, happened? it? was the eve of our, I did the deal on the eve of our 10 year anniversary. Did you ever feel like you know, a lot of entrepreneurs who sort of birth the child, you kind of feel like you're giving your baby up now for adoption. <laughs> did you have that feeling or were you ready to depart from, like not depart, but ready to let go of it? No, I
0: mean, it, to me, I didn't see as letting go. Um, I did that deal five years ago and I'd never been more in control of the company than I am now today mm. on the eve of my departure. And the way the deal was set up, it isn't like um, it was about them taking control, it was about them giving me the resources to invest in the company to create explosive growth. Where before when I was running an independent company, all that risk fell on me personally. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if we made one bad move, one bad season, we were wiped out, right? We didn't have a reserve funds. Mm-hmm. It's all just like everything we have is invested in the company and either worked or didn't. Mm-hmm. We either were making big paychecks or we weren't. Yeah. So like we were hesitant in our in our investment. And it, like, this, like this culture now of like a round of investment and I'm doing my A round, C round, there's like uh, whatever this called, shark, tank culture that we live in now. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. So even though we were like a profitable company, I never went and thought about raising money. We never took out a loan from the bank. We just did everything like organically rolled over from that very first show in Long Beach, to 2003. We just kept reinvesting the profits and getting a little bit bigger and taking money home.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: So we just didn't have a lot of capital. Yeah. And um, the Reed pop deal gave us the ability for me to go out and get aggressive. So within those three first two years, three years, we launched Vegas. Launched New York, launched Miami. I launched Agenda Emerge, mm-hmm. right? This like education platform. I launched a video platform. I just, you know, just launched a women's show called Axis. We acquired Capsule. Like we started just going crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Everything I wanted to do, we could literally do. They got it. They got me, and they're like, yeah, they just backed me basically. Mm-hmm. So, and they gave me infrastructure and resources and legal help and finance help. So it was yeah. like, it was it. It was like anything that I could dream up mm-hmm. that was a good
1: business decision. We were running at it full speed. Can you talk a little bit about like, what you had to give up in order to get that? Equity in the company, okay. <laughs> the majority. The majority, <laughs> Yeah. okay. So you, but you also got paid for that? Of course, you okay. know, it
0: wasn't like, um, you know, some some companies, you know, like they raise capital against, like putting more operating capital in the company. Yeah. We gave up the controlling stake of the company and got capital to operate. So it was kind of like the dream deal, mm-hmm. you know, and got to take chips off the table to be financially secure for yeah. the future.
1: So. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, that's kind of like your dream situation. Right. And for you, was that like stupid, dumb money that now you don't have to think about money for the rest of your life? (laughs) Um, It was good money. Evil laugh. (laughs) Um, (laughs) As long as I'm an
0: idiot. uh, I don't know if it's like a Dave Chappelle... He's like, talking about rich is some shit you could lose with one summer in a drug habit. You know, like anyone. I've seen a lot of people, especially some of our friends in streetwear, lose some stupid money. Mm -hmm. Luckily, I'm not the bottle-popping, Ferrari-buying type. But, um, I mean, yeah, I I did well. I'm very happy with that. And uh, as long as I
1: remain to be the modest um, person that I am, I think I'll I'll be all right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what is the difference between living like someone who does stuff for no money Right, like literally not receiving yeah. any money to the guy who like, it, the money doesn't matter now because it's in such abundance. Is it like the same brain wave or is it like you have to reprogram yourself now?
0: I think it's the same for me. I don't think I, I mean, I don't know you've known me for a while. People, I don't think I've changed very much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not driving a Prius anymore, but uh, I, uh, I my motivation is really the same. Like I drive yeah. off of the shit that interests me. I want to be involved around shit that interests me. I've had a lot of other opportunities to do other shit, and I just wasn't interested
1: in, you know. So I, where do you think it goes wrong for those people you mentioned where like, it changed, like money changes people? That's a, that's a common phrase.
0: I don't know. I think it, maybe it's a matter of how you're raised, mm. you know? Like I didn't grow up poor by any means. Um, so maybe some people, if they grew up not having a lot, they maybe get money and then it's like a shock for them. And then they, you know, they they need to go out and splurge, mm-hmm. you know. I think it's just a personality thing. Like yeah, I have good parents and they raised me well, and I haven't, you know, I didn't have feel the need to go out and like be an asshole. I
1: don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that is. I just see... maybe you, maybe you got your asshole out when you were like in high school and like... yeah, I was an asshole in a
0: different way. But my version of being an asshole was like going on writing someone's property. You know, not necessarily like yeah. you know, buying a ten thousand dollar bottle of champagne at a nightclub. I don't know. Right. <laughs>
1: Aaron is literally the personification of determination. Yes, there's stress, there's fear, there's anxiety. But if you invest the time, talent, and energy into the product, the product will speak for itself. Your job as the founder is to break past all that fear and allow the work to speak for itself. An extremely wise lesson from Aaron learned the hard way. True trial by fire.
0: So... Um in two thousand and January two thousand and fifteen I had a chance meeting. I already knew Mark Echo, um, but I had a meeting with him in LA. He invited me out to some conference and he was there with his uh head of sales or CRO Moksha at some conference and we got to talking and this kind of organic conversation developed where I said, Well, we should just Create ComplexCon then, right? Because like, mm-hmm. I knew I was trying to do something consumer, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And this mm-hmm. conversation we were having kind of escalated to like, yeah, we should do something together. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're like, yeah, come in and pitch us. So I went to New York for Agenda New York. And then I got a meeting with Noah uh, from Complex, Rich, Maksha, and Mark, mm-hmm. one of the four heads of Complex at the time. Yep. And I, I pitched. I put this deck together and I, I pitched them an idea for ComplexCon in January of 2000 and
1: and 15 mm-hmm. and um, which essentially was like taking the expertise that you had of like running a show and their consumer facing fan base already and merging the two right exactly yeah. kind of like they had a lot of great curation and a lot
0: of great reach I think reach really the biggest thing there and, and really mark um, you know mark well others I'm sure know of mark like he is really genius sometimes like you know has like these amazing ideas and I think the idea that I had was like you know agenda open to the public you know, Comic Con version of it, right? But Mark really helped take the vision to a higher level where he's like, let's throw Pharrell in there and let's throw Takashi Murakami in there. And Mark really like had the access to people that I didn't have as well as the consumers. Mark really helped polish the idea and make it something bigger than what maybe I initially imagined. Mm. Um so it was that combination of brain power of my execution and relationships with brands and Mark's relationships with some of these really high level influencers and complex's reach. It's kind of a yeah. secret sauce that is Complex Con. Right. And um even Moksha's ability to bring in non-endemic brands to help underwrite some of these really cool activations. Some of the cool stuff at ComplexCon, like those brands don't have money, you know? So yeah. just kinda sort of like putting those things together, art activations that don't make us any money. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we, we jammed on trying to do a contract for most of 2015. In November 2015, the deal got signed, and one year later, we launched the show.
1: I heard some from some people at the first ComplexCon that like, even like days before ComplexCon, because it's just it comes down to like kids coming in yeah. for the show to be successful and you don't know if the kids are actually going to show up or not right so it was like nerve-wracking all the way to the opening doors we sold 10,000 tickets in the last 48 hours of the first complex Con. right so 72 hours before no one
0: might be showing up uh, not enough <laughs> i knew that not enough kids were sh- like literally 5 days before i'm like we're fucked i'm like we just sold the stream and there's not enough people coming and i'm like not enough kids are coming I'm like we're fucked and like, I was literally like having a fucking heart attack. You know, wow. like, that's it. Yeah. And you just gotta like, keep a smile on your face, act calm. <laughs> What's that like, keep calm and <laughs> like
1: those stupid Yeah, those stupid memes? t-shirts, yeah, like, yeah.
0: Keep calm and put on complex ComplexCon and go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what happened to those last 48 hours? What happened? Kids just procrastinate. That's just, it, I learned yeah. that like people, Are just you know, unless minute.
0: you're like Coachella, yeah. and like you have this reputation that like you can't get it, which maybe ComplexCon will develop that over the years. Mm-hmm. People just they were gonna wait. Yeah. It's like kids react this is a social media short attention span generation. And they're gonna do things like I kept telling people I was nervous and they're like, I asked, you know, some young Joey in my office, like, you know, 25-year-old guy, and he's like, hey, I hang out with 20-year-old kids. He's like, it's Monday. If you ask him what he's doing on Thursday, he has no fucking idea. He's like, Aaron, you have a calendar that tells you everything you're doing for a month. Yeah. These kids don't know what they're doing fucking tomorrow. So right. he's like, you're freaking out. But he's like, you'll be good. He told me he's young. He had better perspective wow. in, on life than I did. Yeah, like, kids, are, fine.
1: kids are having breakfast. Like, should we go to complex yeah, yeah, let's go. Exactly. Like,
0: I just didn't think like that because I had tens, of millions of dollars on the line. Yeah, uh, like yeah. I was nervous about losing.
1: <laughs> right. Um, all right. So you just recently made the announcement. Does that mean you're also walking away from Complexon?
0: Huh? I'm walking away from everything in the sense of working on it full time. I'm mm-hmm. still going to be a advisor to the company that I built and you know, from afar, help make sure they don't fall off the tracks and, you know, make sure they're pointed in the right direction, which has been a big pivot going from a B2B company to a consumer-facing, you know, with the Genna Festival and ComplexCon and some Mm -hmm. other stuff that I've been working on in the background kind of point in this new direction. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll be a high-level
1: strategic advisor and clean slate starting something new. I mean, you just finished ComplexCon 2. Everyone talks about ComplexCon like it's been here for 10 years and it's like the most game-changing experience. We've only finished the second one. And you were, were, you know, like future thinking enough because obviously there was years in the making of ComplexCon before the doors opened, right? So you spent all these years planning it, called in the right people, made the right deals to make it happen. You done two, and now you're like, I built the future, and I'm walking away, drop the mic, and we'll walk out the room. What the fuck?
0: <laughs> that, that was the hardest part, man. I mean, agenda's my baby. ComplexCon is my baby. Uh, it's your with, new baby. Uh, yeah. And, um, <laughs> I just, and everyone's so excited about it. I'm really,
1: what's in your head?
0: I'm really, really at the point where I feel like I have to achieve some, some major shit with my time on this planet. Um, you know, this not that I'm trying to get into like my political or religious beliefs, but like I'm a, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in an afterlife. I don't believe in anything past this. I feel like I have a very finite amount of time on this planet. I also um, believe that I have a third chapter in my career where I have to. Go and do something that is meaningful and philanthropic um, and uh, you know essentially as much as I love what we do in the culture and the design and this and that essentially everything I've done is meaningless I've helped people move cotton t-shirts from one place to another more mm-hmm. efficiently and in a cool way um, and the next thing I do will probably be in that same vein mm-hmm. um, but I, I know that with this finite amount of time I have to do one more big business thing and I got to do something really meaningful for, like, the planet or humanity or whatever. So I got these two big things. I got to get to them. Wow. <laughs> and, like, I believe that this next thing, it's either going to be the biggest thing I've ever done and be way bigger than ComplexCon or anything I've ever achieved. And, like, I look at someone like Mark Zuckerberg or whatever. Mark Zuckerberg is younger than me. Yeah. It's one of the biggest fucking companies on Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as ComplexCon's amazing, it's small in the big scheme of life and the world. And, you know, mm-hmm. like, I want to make bigger impacts and do bigger things because... The one thing that rings true, I've always taken my, my winnings from whatever that is and then like help whatever it is. I give money to dog charities or I do philanthropic shit, whatever. So the bigger impact I can make through business, the bigger I can double down on the things that I really wanna do long term. Mm-hmm. So for me, the winnings here are not big enough and I need to risk all the winnings. I'm gonna double down and put it all on red or whatever, yeah. all in a certain number to help make
1: 10X to then do something meaningful. So this is like this leapfrog. Is- so you, you finished chapter one, you're now embarking on chapter two, so you can get to the chapter three, which yeah. is the personal life-changing shit. Yeah. Is that a mathematical calculation that told you that what you did in chapter one is not enough to just leapfrog to chapter three, or it's a gut feeling? Because it, I, think think g- lo- I think you have a lot, It's just, and you probably can make a lot if of positive I change. Do,
0: if I want to do something in politics, if I want to do something on like a... Bill and Melinda Gates level yeah. foundation, you need like hundreds of millions of dollars to make an impact in this world. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I don't have that. Yeah, <laughs> I've done very well, but I don't have hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. and like, yeah, I want to make that much money to not make for the bigger, sake, not bigger. for the sake of like, I want to be a billionaire like personally so I can be a dickhead with a private jet. I want to mm-hmm.
1: like, you know, give it all away or do something meaningful with it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay those are goals yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to talk quickly about um, other investments that you've made too because you're known for Agenda and ComplexCon but you've also sort of have a portfolio of of your own as well right so can you talk about some of the other brands that you've helped out along the way and are involved with not brands but companies along the way um, when
0: agenda first started I actually incubated two companies Um, I incubated Agenda and a company called the agenda showroom which is like a brand management firm where I helped identify up-and-coming brands and help distribute them, mm-hmm. you know, like Agenda a Showroom it eventually became, morphed as Agenda and Agenda Showroom got confusing, we changed the name to a company called The Network Agency, and we, you know, so many different cool brands we work with, and I found them when they were literally doing nothing and helped incubate them doing millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So a brand I found that I loved out of San Francisco called the Imaginary Foundation was doing $45,000 in sales. I met the guy at the Magic Trade Show in early two thousands and helped him become a multi million dollar company. Mm. I met the brand Primitive when they were doing a couple hundred thousand dollars in sales and helped them become multi million dollar company and help you know yeah expand brands distribution and help them set up that sales infrastructure.
1: So let me ask you this: yeah. to a kid who's like listening to this podcast yeah. right now, he's got a brand. Yeah, he's done fifty thousand dollars in sales. Why can't or what do you look for in a brand? Because I'm sure you get hit up by. Dozens yeah. and dozens of brands. What is a yes brand and what is a no brand? What is like the checklist criteria in your head? At one point for me, I was just looking for cool
0: design and cool graphics. And it would, I don't have the company anymore, which is I'll get to that part in a minute. But um, I just literally like I'm a graphic designer, as the, was the majority of my career before doing this. So mm-hmm. I just I'm obsessed with graphics and typography and whatever. I'm like obsessive. So I just saw cool T-shirts. I'm like that one, that one, that one. It just whatever caught my eye, right? Okay. Whatever I thought was marketable. Okay. Um, later on, I think it became more about like items that can penetrate. As the market became, there's so many clothing brands, so many t-shirt brands, whatever. Mm-hmm. Things like, um, you know, Herschel bags or like slow-tied towels or stance socks. Only some of those companies I was involved with. But the point being is like these category plays where there's white space. Yeah. So now, even, you, even if you have great design, that's not enough. You need yeah. to have great design, great marketing, great product placement, great this, great that. Too many variables to win. Or mm-hmm. some people are just like, oh, there's no one making shoelaces or or whatever that is, right? There's like this white space. So now I think I'm, from an investment standpoint and at the network, I think we were looking for brands that had a white space. And one of those brands was Herschel Supply Company, Mm -hmm. um, you know, which was one of the early brands we were involved with. And we eventually
1: ended up selling the company to Herschel uh, last year. That's interesting that um, you say that Herschel had a white space because, you know, because of Herschel's success, there's a lot of shit talkers about Herschel, right? (laughs) And like the the common shit talk about Herschel is like, it's a fucking Jansport with a white label instead of a blue label, <laughs> right? So what's the white space? There's plenty of backpack companies. What did Herschel do? What did you see in Herschel that was like, no, this is, this is a winning horse? Um, I think you can make the same argument there were plenty of
0: vodka companies before Diddy came with Ciroc, mm-hmm. you know? They had a unique vernacular in the way they marketed and communicated the product. It looked like a heritage company, even though it was a new company. I thought the design was better. Um, Jansport, to me, you know, never seemed that interesting. It seemed like a bag you could buy at Staples. Mm-hmm. And even though, yeah, there's always lots of bags, just like there's lots of socks before stance, right? Yeah. There's no shortage of socks in the world. It's just someone reimagined it and marketed it and packaged it and graphicked it and uh-huh. did everything smarter and newer in a way that appealed to my generation or the generation, whatever, the generation below me. So it's a bit of a reinvention. It's just a repackaging. Yeah. The white space was that there's a boring commodity right. that's there. And someone's coming in and breathing energy into a category. Yeah. Right? And um, I think that could be argued with many different things. And let's look at, you know, in popular culture today, there's tons of game shows on television that you can win money by participating. And I just saw this HQ Trivia thing. Have you seen this? No. Okay. There's this app called HQ Trivia that 700,000 people are tuning into twice a day every day. And they're giving away $10,000 for answering trivia questions. It's the most genius fucking thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It's no different than Jeopardy or something else, but it's the way just that swipe variation of how it's presented. Mm. You know, so that to me is the white space. Yeah. Um, and you could, you could argue that with many different things. Right, right. Um, so that's you know. what you look for.
1: Yeah. Okay. And then you mentioned about now you, so you sold the network to
0: we did the network for a long time. Okay. Yeah. Herschel ended up uh, buying the company from my, me and my partner, Kellen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you asked about other things. Uh, I'm an investor in a company called Slow Tide Towels. Mm-hmm. Have you seen them? Yep. Yeah, so really cool company, beach towels, amazing artwork on it. You know, mm-hmm. Of course, no shortage of towels or beach towels, but they're putting amazing mm-hmm. artwork and amazing lifestyle brand around that. And also, it's kind of like that idea of like focus on a category, As opposed to trying to make 100 things, they make one thing, they make a towel. Make yeah. a big small, towel, small towel, round towel, it's towels, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, uh, I have invested in a beer company um, called House Beer. Uh-huh. Um, I previously invested in a very successful beer company called St. Archer Brewing Company, which ended up selling to for a lot of money. I mm-hmm. was first kind of like action sports focused beer company. Uh, that was a big point of differentiation. They had a safe skate team, surf teams, all very social media driven. Mm-hmm. Um, invested in a juice company called Press Juice, very successful. Um, I recently launched a uh, hot sauce company called Truff, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of like a mobile-first, social media-driven, direct-to-consumer luxury hot sauce company. Mm-hmm. Um, doing very, very well. Only been out a few weeks. I received tons of uh, tons of praise and engagement online. Um, I've got some art galleries in LA that I'm a part of, Seventh Letter and Known Gallery, and a bunch of other stuff.
1: Are <laughs> you into like investments that you're not really actively taking apart?
0: I have stocks and bonds and stuff like that, and there's definitely some investments that I've done that are. Um, I'm not like an advisor, but I, I like to do things where I have some connectivity to the company. That's part of my value. Yeah, and I like you know taking a lot of stuff I learned from this market. Yeah, and how do you apply that to a, a boring consumer product? Because um, I think you know the way in which you or I would market a T-shirt or a sneaker or whatever, is you know somewhat white noise within. The world of this stuff right mm-hmm. you know you do it better than anybody but like you know, there's a lot of people trying to collaborate on a sneak or whatever but if all of a sudden you were doing that if you took your expertise and applied it to a dish soap or any product that procter and gamble or johnson johnson makes it's revolutionary it's mm. game changing right, right right um just you know look at a dollar shave club yeah you know they just simply put a little pivot on the distribution and the voice and the marketing of a razor and they <laughs> right. Gillette bought them for a billion dollars you yeah, know and amazing. i just think we learned so much in this hype stakes, high-paced environment of like fashion and mm-hmm. lifestyle, just taking those learnings and applying it to anywhere else has become so much more interesting than trying to apply it internally. Yeah, and
1: I think it's a very good thesis for like where the world's going. And you mentioned before about like the shark tank culture, yeah. right? Um, and you and I always get pitched on by small companies that are like, <laughs> I have this idea, right? Yeah. So speak to the people listening to this. What's a good pitch?
0: <laughs> um, I mean, you know what? What are
1: some tips on a pitch to you?
0: I got to like the people. There's no, there's no tips. Honestly, most of the deals that I found, I called them before they were looking for investment. So, like, I called the slow tie guys before they made a towel. Oh, I saw their they press. didn't even pitch you. I called them and I said, I want to invest in your company. And they're like, we're not even taking And I'm like, well, I want to invest in your company. And they're what? like, well, what? We're not even launched yet. And I'm like, I don't care. You know what I mean? I just saw the idea and I'm like, boom. I was laser focused on, like, finding stuff. Okay. I get tons, of, I would say like 99% of the decks that have income to me inside investment, I haven't ever gone with. That always been me going to other people, asking if I can get involved. Mm-hmm. So better to go with the people who aren't looking, because those people are successful. People who are looking either haven't incubated the idea, they haven't done the hard part, they have an idea. There's a lot of fucking ideas out there. Yeah. I have a lot of fucking ideas. I've had some horrible ideas. <laughs> Find the people who actually are doing the ideas and, and then try to get involved to with them. They're making it happen. Right. They're the smart operators. They got some capital on their own. They had some capital. They're risking You know, these guys from Slow Tide. They took everything they had from working at Billabong and the respective places they had mm-hmm. worked, and they basically gave up everything to put it all into this company. Those yeah. are guys I want to be involved with. You right. know? They're willing to put their own neck out there on the line to make this happen, and I'm just adding a little... Fuel of the flame, you know. Well, has anyone
1: pitched you and you went with it?
0: <sighs> Ones
1: I regret. <laughs> really, that's it. So, so your model really does work, like for you anyway. For me, yeah. If they like put put in the time to like pitch you, it means there's problems. I don't under know the if hood, it means there's
0: problems. It just means that maybe, you know, some people are more focused at like there's like this trend, the Shark Tankification of the world, like. I'm in my A round, I'm in my C round, like running around, like it's more, they're more consumed with raising capital mm-hmm. than they are with running the business or with how great the product is. And right. like, again, like all my years of running agenda, I never once thought about raising money. Mm-hmm. It's like, it just never crossed my mind. And I, I didn't even know that was a thing until I saw Shark Tank. Like, <laughs> I didn't know what a round was. Like, yeah, yeah. So I just think you should find people who are just doing
1: great shit and then ask how you can get behind them to further the great shit. All right, I think that's a good way to end it. Yeah. you have any other Last bits you want to you want to say about what you're going to embark on or anything? Do you want to give any hints? <laughs> um,
0: I uh, I'm very excited about it. I've been uh, working on it for the last couple months, and um, I think I think it's going to be big. Cool. <laughs> and
1: you've only been working on it for a few months. Yeah. Okay. But it's pretty baked already. The idea is baked. The structure is baked. The, mm-hmm. Yeah. Exciting. All right. Yeah. We'll look forward to it. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You can find out more about the show or listen to past episodes at hypebeast.com slash radio. You can subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. I use Overcast. And reach out to me on Twitter, at Jeff Staple. Check us out on the web at businessofhype.com. And you can email us any questions to questions at businessofhype.com. The Business of Hype is directed by Daniel Novetta. It's edited and produced by Bright Young Things. You could check them out at byt.nyc. Engineering was done by Patrick Morris, and this was recorded at Sibling Rivalry Studio in New York City and on location in Long Beach, California. I'm Jeff Staple, and you've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hypebeast Radio.